Hello everyone and welcome to this latest episode of Beast Pod. My name is Ian Bottrell and I'm delighted uh, as ever to be joined by my two wonderful co-hosts, uh, starting off as ever with Mem. How are you doing this evening, Mem? I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to getting into this tonight. So uh, let's, Brilliant stuff. let's go. Uh, and also delighted to be joined by Charlie. How are you doing this evening, Charlie? Well, good, Ian. Um, yeah, nice to be here as always. And uh, yeah, we've got a lot to get through. A lot to get through. Well, I think this might be the most mobile bees probably we've had. I'm currently seeing in a car in Battersea. Uh, I'm about to go home after this show. And speaking of Battersea, it's a word, batter, that we've heard quite a lot on it over the last six games or so. Since we recorded last, the bees have not been on the best run of form. Uh, a solitary victory against Maidstone, a point against Solihull Moors, but four quite heavy defeats in some places um, against the likes of Wrexham, Dagenham, York and Dorking. Um, let's start with yourself, Charlie, on this one then. The last time we spoke, we talked about a positive start, perhaps the results masking some weaker performances. It seems now that we're seeing perhaps a more of a, a clearer matchup between the, some of the weaker performances and the results. Um, what have you made of our performances in the last six games? And, and do you feel that the results I've just read out there with those defeats is a kind of fair reflection of where we are right now as a team? Yeah, it's such a difficult one. Like I remember my dad always used to say to me growing up, Barnet, Barnet like a bag of revels. You never know what you're going to get. And I really feel that that's been, you know, the story of, well, the story of since I've been a Barnet fan for the last 20 plus years. Um, you know, we, we lose that we lose that home game to Dorking. You know, we all went there, let's be honest, we all thought we were going to win. Uh, we got, you know, we got beaten. We thought we were going to turn them over comfortably. But then, you know, they've got some great results over the last couple of weeks. So you think, you look back and go, well, was that was that actually an all right defeat? Um, and then we go to Solihull a couple of days later who were flying, um, unbeaten at home, I think. And, you know, only a missed penalty in the last 10 minutes stopped us from getting all three there. Um, but it's just, it's just, you know, it's uh, we all know it's the, the defence is the issue. I just can't get my head around the fact that we've scored... Um, we scored four at Dagenham and five at Wrexham and haven't picked up a point. I just can't, I just still can't come to terms with the fact that that's happened and that, and we've come away from those games with nothing. Um, it's just seems to be something that stuck with us. Uh, you know, it was there last year and, and, and also the year before under Beadle. And we thought this was, you know, the year where, we all said at the start of the season, didn't we? I think us three spoke about it as well on one of the podcasts that I don't think this year we'll get turned over in any games from what we'd seen at the start of the season. It was, a, you know, we'd lose, obviously, um, but it wasn't, a, you know, we didn't feel like we'd get turned over and torn apart as we have done the past previous two seasons. And um, it's just a real shame, you know, that this is happening again. And it's like, you know, I don't know where, I don't know what we change. I don't know where it, we... It's, it's a really difficult one because I feel like if we hadn't, you know, if, we, if we're not conceding these goals that we're conceding, we'd be in the top three, I think. I, I'm really confident on that because we're scoring goals for fun. We're the third highest goal scorers in the league uh, and we've conceded the most out of every single club in the division, which is a real, real, real issue um, that needs to be addressed ASAP. Yeah, and no, I agree with you, I agree with you there, Charlie. And I've got some ideas uh, what I think is going on um, currently with the team um, I've, I've touched upon this on um, on Twitter and 
it's, it's interesting what you say, Charlie, earlier on about the the fact that at the beginning of the season we seemed really competitive and we were like, you know, in games um, and we looked like we'd never, we wouldn't get turned over. And then all of a sudden in the last four games, all of a sudden there's been a flood of goals conceded. And I think from my observations of seeing some of the goals conceded and actually and being like in live in the stadium, it's been that we appear to have, of of lost the ability to stop transitions and it's becoming far too easy for the opposition to get from their box to our box and whether that results in a free kick or results in a corner or results in a goal what's happening is is our defense are essentially playing attack fee defense and it's been to me it was i think the the goal against Wrexham that uh, that we conceded against Wrexham that Oli Palmer scored, the one where Gorman concedes the ball, concedes possession in midfield, ball starts on in in Wrexham's half, and it went through our team completely unchallenged, and ended up with Oli Palmer. That to me encapsulates a lot of the problems we have because I've seen that move throughout the last few games happening regularly and it might not result in a goal it might result in a corner or it might result in a free kick in a dangerous area but we do not are not helping ourselves by by not um by not trying to stop these these uh, moves at source um there is seems to be a players seem to be scared of dumping a player on their backside and all the really ugly teams in our division moral muds and all that lot you go past them and you look like you're breaking, one of them will bring you down. And then they start mm. and stop. And then they everybody gets behind the ball and they start again. And we seem unable to, uh, unable to stop any attacks in their tracks early doors. And we end up with yeah. this situation where we just get uh, just get cut through instantly. You know, from what you're from what you've seen, does that seem to resonate with you the way I've explained that? A hundred percent, definitely. And what else? What else I've noticed, which is slightly, you know, moving on um, from from your point, is that the three centre mids. I think the reason what you're saying, I think one of the reasons for this is the start of the season. Gorman used to sit quite deep and he used to pick it up. You know, even when we had the ball, he used to receive the ball quite deep and play that sort of holding role that uh, Sam Togwell used to play the year we won the league. Um, and you look at it now and they just seem to have lost a little bit of discipline between the three of them because the Haviland, Gorman and Pritchard, when he's been in there, they all seem to be a three, but, you know, in a line. And there's not that there's not that CDM and that, you know, holding role there, which does the job that you're saying, you know, when, when a team's breaking just to take them out. Um, I also think a big part of it is, I mean, you, you, have, you had Phillips playing centre-half on Saturday, Alongside Akimo, um, I just you, you know they're all they're all lovely fellas, but I, I feel like these players, Akimo Phillips, they they were brought in to be to be you know rotational players and players who would come on from the bench or players who would you know fill the squad up. And Brennan even said that at the start of this season. Um, and when you got these players and then starting week in week out, and you know going to Wrexham away when the when the strikers have got a combined weekly wage of about twenty grand. You can't expect to to keep you know keep the goals out. Um, Diara, bless him. Diara is a lovely, lovely fellow. I've spoken to him in the bar every now and again a few times, but he's 
he's not cut out for this division, I don't think, in my opinion, and neither is Akimo. Um, they're not. They could, they could, they could do a job for you know a bottom half team. If that's what we want to be, that's where we want to be, and we want to be competing in the bottom half of the table. Then fair enough. Let's 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 keep them and let's start them every week. But if we want to be up there competing for the playoffs, you need another quality centre back next to next to Collins, and then another one on the bench. So you've got backup. We need quality all round, and that's something we're lacking. And you know, Brennan's even said it in that interview after the game. We need to sign better players. But I'm sorry to say it, and I said this on Twitter. They're your players. You bought them. You 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 know you put your trust in them and you thought they could do a job. It's clearly clearly not working at the back. Um, and whether that's individual players or whether that comes down to the coaching and the managerial side of things, or it could be a bit of both. Um, but it can't it can't keep happening. And I, I'm worried about Saturday, man. And Ian, I'm worried because Western Supermare, they're second in the league. I think they've scored 13 goals in the last three games. I think I read somewhere. That worries me, and I and I can't believe I'm saying that about a team who are three leagues below us, or, or however many leagues it is below us. Um, I can, you know, I, I will not be surprised if we leave the hive on Saturday and we've lost, we've lost one 0 or we've lost two one or something. There, it, it would not surprise me the way the way we're going at the minute. Well, I kind of feel like any team that has any goals in them has got a chance against us because we're not tight enough. We're not asking teams. Teams don't have to have quality to currently to score against us. Um, and it goes back. So there's a really good point you made about the um, about Akimo and having Phillips. Now, from what I understand, Phillips is one of these is, is a player that's been brought in with the hope that he can step up to National League because he's done very well at National League South. He's playing out of, out of position. I can't feel I feel like I can't really blame him because because he's doing a job, he's doing a, a job for the team. Um, Akimo, from what I understand, was brought in predominantly as a coach, and he has played far more games than he was in the, the expectation. The expectation was that he—I think he played all of them. Yeah, so he was he always to be a backup, game, yeah. to, to step in, step out, and just basically, you know, just cover positions in case. And he's been playing far more, and he's the guy's never played higher than National League South in his career, so he is. Clearly, this is a test for him, especially he's like 34, 35 now. Um, Diara, from what I understand, is, is he suffering from long COVID? That's been, yeah. been been said. So we are desperate for a dominant centre-back who will be able to organise in front of him. Because I do wonder as well, is, is it because also that potentially we need somebody to be able to drag the midfield back into shape and get them into, into the right place so that basically we, do, we are not... You know, we, it is not a case of the teams attack us and they're already on our back four and have hadn't had, haven't had a challenge yet made. Um, I think if I, if I could just add add in one thing, then just on that point, because I think one of the interesting things about the recruitment side of things and also like talking about the back four, I think Brennan's coming for a little bit of flack around the Akimo situation um, because obviously it's left us quite heavily exposed in certain games. And one of the things that's quite interesting with the players that we've signed is that it's not as easy as putting a defender across the back four and dealing with an issue. If you look at the way Akimo plays as the centre-back playing in a full-back position, he wants to play very, very narrow. Um, and we're just really heavily exposed. If you look at some of the videos of the goals we concede, and actually if you're in the games themselves, Dagenham being a good example, Rex Monsaster being a good example, we just allow far too much time and space in wide areas for teams to come and punish us. And the kind of additional point I want to add just on Diara, like, 
it's a, it's almost a, a classic example of just being sensible about how you use data in football. I remember when Diara was signed that he was talked about as being one of the players with the highest amount of defensive actions, um, you know, in terms of like blocks and headers and, and wins in the box. Obviously, in some ways, that's a good sign. But if you look at like the best centre-backs in the league, they wouldn't necessarily rank high up in terms of those actions because their anticipation or their reading of the game or the way in which we're sort of set up to play um, means that they're not exposed as often to, and have to make sort of last ditches sort of tackles and blocks and shots, etc., to to kind of get in the way of. So I just, I get the sense that there's something that's not been quite right or quite fully thought through in terms of the recruitment across the back four. And the thing that's bizarre to me is that this was always the issue. Like last year, our defence was, I think, second worst only to Dover. This year, it's the worst in the league. And it does sort of seem to be a systematic problem. We've had countless people play across the back four. The issues remain. And so my question is really whether it's a, a structured issue or whether it's a case of kind of bad luck over and over, over again, or whether actually it's a kind of recruitment issue in terms of, fitting profiles that account for the fact that we're going to get quite a lot of injuries throughout the year. Sorry to interrupt then. I just want to add that point in. No, no, I agree. And and the thing is, I actually think it's a structural problem because I don't actually think that the issue is, is, you know, if a team gives us a chance to get behind the ball, we don't look as porous. For me, the problem is, is transitions is the, is the ability to stop a counterattack in its tracks and you can do, there's a number, there's, you can do it in several ways. There is the funneling system where you funnel a player or an attack down a certain area and then give your team a chance to regroup. There is the, obviously there is the sort of high press, Gagan pressing where you lose the ball and straight away you get swarmed by four players and you win it back instantly. Or you have the Mourinho way, which is basically if a player goes past you and they start an attack, you dump them on the backside and everybody gets back behind the ball. Take a free kick take a yellow card, everybody gets behind the ball. Whatever way we do it, it is when the ball goes into transition, when we lose the ball, we are there to be opened up almost instantly. Now, whether or not that will mean is that something like Ryan de Havilland, who is literally when we received the ball, is always on his bike, asked to, asked to start his runs a bit later, ask him to tuck in a bit more, get the three in midfield to be a lot more compact like they were a bit earlier in the season and not so spread out like they are at the moment where, you know, that, you know, then that might have to be the way we have to play in a more pragmatic way so that we are not, when we lose the ball, which we do, because we're not the most secure side in this league. We, we have to be the players are a lot closer together to be able to respond to losing possession. Um, Charlie, and- just to bet at that point from, from them there around like certain aspects of structural, one of the things that we mentioned a bit when we were at the Dagenham game together was, you know, the fact that we were leaving, continually leaving ourselves exposed in attacking set pieces. Uh, so sort of going one-to-one at the back, a good example being that De Havilland goal, I think yeah. that made it 3-3 or 3-2. Are there any other things that you kind of spotted that just seem quite strange, like where the risk-reward ratio is really heavily against this and yet we're still sort of persisting with very simple things that are costing us goals? Yeah, definitely. One of the main things is we keep scoring and conceding within two, three, four minutes. It's happened it happened in three of our goals against Dagenham, two of the goals at home to Maidstone uh, the other night, and two of the goals at Wrexham. It's, you know, it's just inevitable. When if, even if you're not at the game and you, it flashes up on your flash score that we've scored, you just know they're going to score afterwards. And uh, it, that's, is that a, 
is that a structural thing? Is that a, you know, like you said, we leave in De Havilland at the, we went 3-2 up in that game, you know, and straight after at Dagenham, straight after halftime, Kabam puts us 3-2 up. We get a corner about six, seven minutes later. We're leaving one, one-on-one at the back. Like that, that is, I'm not being funny, but is that, is that stupidity from the coaches? Is that the players' miscommunication on the pitch where, you know, someone's not done their job? That's just preposterous. That's like a ridiculous decision. If you go three, two up away, you know, with half an hour to go or whatever, you should be, you should be coming out of there with three points, if not a point. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a disaster we lost that game. And I know it's Wrexham, but, you know, when we went 2-1 up there, you shouldn't, that shouldn't be a capitulation then. Especially that we, the fact we went on to score another three. Like, there's a serious issue. And, and part of me does think that it is the coaching staff because you have to take some responsibility. It can't always be individual errors and it can't always be, um, you know, a, tat- a thing on, that happens on the pitch. There, there comes a thing where Brennan and his backroom staff have got to drill that into the players. And, you know, well, we, can't, we can't be leaving ourselves in situations like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think some of it is, is absolutely tactical. Um, I, I mean, like, you look at the corner, the De Havilland corner away at Dagenham, which for me was one of the most disappointing goals to concede. Like, that is is criminal insofar as a, a member of the coaching staff must be able to spot that and say, actually, you know what, we're going one-on-one here, let's just pull a man back, we're, we're three to up, whatever. Um, but the other thing is, it's just drills on, on getting people to push out from the back. And often we're very slow to clear our lines and we basically, either we we don't clear the first phase, so, you know, the ball comes in, we might be off that, we often do clear it because we've got reasonably good players in the air, but we're just very, very slow at reacting when the ball moves up, so we just don't push out quickly enough. You look at some of the Rexham's goals, at least two of them on that Saturday came from us not really pushing out the pitch quickly enough. Mm. Um, another example, the Maidstone, it's kind of like these sort of second phases where the ball goes back into the box or York, the free kick, where, you know, we clear the first corner and then it doesn't quite get fully cleared and then a the guy fires it in from 25 yards. So, sure, part of it is, and I can see why Brennan does blame individual players because it, it looks from the outskirts like it's not as though we're, you know, conceding directly off corners or we're conceding, you know, with people running through the middle of the pitch. But at the same time, there has to be more work done in terms mm-hmm. of the urgency and organisation uh, of the back four. Um, and to me, it, it's a real, it is a real problem. The fact that last year we were so weak defensively, we were getting absolutely hammered by big teams. And it is genuinely good that we've managed to create some really good attacking patterns that in some ways aren't related to us conceding. That's the thing that's really interesting to me is it's not the case that you could often turn around with a side that's scoring loads and conceding goals and saying, well, yeah, we're scoring loads, but the reason we're conceding loads is because we're playing in a very attacking and expansive way. That's actually not what's, ha- that's not what's happening so much. The way we're scoring isn't necessarily related to how we're defending. It's, they're almost like very different phases of play. Um, and so, it, you know, in some hand, it's, it's, it's like, right, Brennan's really got a job to do to sort it out. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, we're, we're not actually that far away because we've got some really nice attacking attacking play mm. and attacking patterns there. It's, it's, like, it's like watching two teams. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, no, but it's just like watching, um, it's like watching two teams. Like, you know, that Wrexham game uh, and even, even the Maidstone game, if you could only see, you know, if, you're, if you could say you were blind in one eye and you could only see the left-hand side of the pitch in one half and in the second half, you could only see the right-hand side of the pitch. You would you'd think that, that is two completely different teams. You know, the, the, some of the attacking goals we scored against Wrexham, combined with the goals we conceded, anyone would, you know, would not put those two sides together. And it's a real shame because I feel like this is some of the best attacking play and the best attacking players we've had in years. 
And it is exciting because, you know, every time you go forward, you think we've got a chance. We've got so many exciting players in Shields and now Canu and Kabamba and Pritchard and, you know, Gorman and De Havilland as well. Um, and then, you know, it's just the complete opposite. It goes down the other end and you just you just think we're going to concede every time. And it's such a shame because I feel like we're so close and Brendan has made a difference. And we are, you know, nearly there in terms of being a decent side that we can be proud of. But um, there's, just a, there's just a lot of work to be done at the back. There is, there is yeah, something I- to be said. About we made obviously made the point about the fact that in loads of these games we have been at some point had our noses in front of some of these losses like Daggers and Wrexham, and yet we've been almost hit immediately. And also, there's been loads of games as well this season where we've literally conceded really early, and which suggests to me that the team really don't know how to slow a game down. They don't know how to break it up. And there's a bit, I mean, I, you know, I hate to put to, 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 to bring up the example of Bournemouth again twice in the, this podcast, but the point is, is that the reason why Bournemouth are so successful at what they do at this level is that they learn how to completely break up a game so teams can't get any attacking momentum. So if it means that they get that they get thrown, they slow the game down. They take their time over free kicks. They get in front and they basically waste time. That everything is done. At, uh, when they're when they're when they're winning, everything's done at snail's pace. So against Wrexham, you're you're and you're you're leading the game against Wrexham. Take the sting out of the game. Start doing the you know the shithousery. Start slowing everything down so that basically we're not going to have suddenly have a onslaught. Start kicking the ball out. You know, kicking the ball. Start taking time over free kicks. Everything. But what we do is we, we we're in some respects we're we're such an we're too nice as a team. We don't want to do all this like the, the nasty stuff. We don't want to have to do the dark arts. But actually, the teams around us, when they get in front against us, they do all this stuff, okay? And they make it hard for us, you know, in some games to get back into it or get some sort of momentum. And I feel that in these games where we get our noses in front, especially away, let's not do stupid things like trying to play and get another goal let's do let's let's bring the game down and make it a really ratty game and break it down so that basically teams can't get any kind of attacking flow against us and just to, just on that point man i think sorry to interrupt you there but i agree i but i think you'd be quite generous in some ways to the players there because it's not it's not about shithousery or 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 you know there's an element of that or slowing their game down in a sort of negative sense of making lots of fouls or time wasting it's just about effective game management. Like when you're clearing your lines, you know, and you just scored clear to touch. If you look at the game against Maidstone, for me, like Maidstone were one of the poorest sides I've seen comes to Hive. Um, I thought we gave them way too much respect on the ball. But it's just like small things about not dropping too deep, playing in their third once you've got a goal up, um, playing to touch. It's not even about necessarily like uh, tactical fouls or doing all the stuff that Gorman does. It's just about smart sensible game management and breaking the game up in a way and it's it's not even even fouls or anything like that the other thing though that's bizarre to me is is some of the defending is is almost as though the players are just thinking too much about the the job that they're doing so it, it's just literally the basics the classic example for me was the Flanagan goal on Saturday against Wrexham where he's kind of like backing off like the I think mm. it's Luke Young the free kick taker for their goal and you're kind of thinking like just deal with the immediate danger. The immediate danger there is the shot. Uh, the same with, uh, you know, the, the Dagenham game. The immediate danger for the, the goal on the counter was, you know, the ball away. 
the immediate danger for the one where Walker tapped in on the line was the ball in the box, not everyone's sort of standing and marking. So it's a kind of a weird mix of almost being undercoached and undermanaged on some things, but almost like bizarrely almost overcoached or it looks like the players are almost thinking too much about what they're doing and not reacting to what's happening in front of them. Um, I don't know what you think, Charlie, whether you've seen anything like that at all in terms of our defensive setup. No, I know, I know exactly what you're saying. It's really well put. Uh, it's, I know what you mean. It's like, just just deal, deal with what's in front of you, like you said, and then, you know, then keep a, keep an eye on what you've been coached and what you need to do in the next phase of play. But there's no point in ignoring danger for the sake of, you know, what you might have been told to stay in a position or, or like the whole De Havilland thing. If the players have been told in that situation before the Dagenham game, that we, you know, we're keeping, we're keeping one back on corners. De Havilland's going to be the one back on the corners. As a as a collective of players at three two up, with half an hour to go, you have to you have to have, you know notice that that's notice that that's not the right thing to do in that situation. Or or Brennan or someone should be shouting saying, "No, we're going to get two back now." Um, and another thing I've noticed as well is, and this is just slightly slightly off topic, um, not off topic, but just slightly sort of um, digressing slightly. I feel like the players I've noticed a lot of the players not not putting trust now in the defenders. If you look, every time Diara gets the ball, Gorman, De Havilland, they are almost sprinting towards him as if to say, hey, give it to me. Because they know that he, when he's got the ball, there's a sense of, shit, what's going to happen? You know, you don't, you don't know what he's going to do. And I felt that the whole game at Dagenham. Um, and I really feel bad saying that because I really, really like him. He's, he's such a nice person from when I've spoken to him in the bar. Um, but I think there's yeah there's a lot of now trust that's gone from the other players uh, subconsciously that um, is not been put into you know the makeshift defence that we have week in week out. Mem, I guess that sort of moving away slightly from the events here, Brennan's clearly got a bit of a job on his hand going forwards. We've come through quite a patchy run of form, um, it's fair to say, with this sort of sliding down from uh, where we were at the start of the season to sort of lower mid table. We've got a cup game on Saturday, followed by a run of games against Maidenhead, Bromley, Scunthorpe, Southend, Altrincham and Oldham, and then Torquay uh, before the uh, game with Notts County at the end of November. If you're Brennan, what sort of things are you thinking of really addressing over the course of the rest of October and November? He's talked a little bit about recruitment there, but do you think there is anything else that he should really be focusing on at this time? I would consider slightly evolving or slightly just adapting uh, the setup of the team. At the moment, we currently play with Bort Gorman at the base. And I think maybe for for the short term, maybe we should try and play somebody, two guys playing in the DM position and play, you know, the flip, basically flip the, tri- uh, the triangle around. Um, the moment we've been playing with Gorman with two eights either side, I think let's play two DMs and, mm-hmm. and, and play with a, a 10 in front just to basically give ourselves a base to start from. Uh, and I think going back to Charlie's point about confidence, I think allow the team to have a bit of confidence that they're not going to constantly get to concede goals. Try and make the next game as tight as possible. Let's not play this expansive game. Um, so to me, that would be the, the obvious thing is, is is not to have so many midfielders pushing forward, be, be a little bit more pragmatic um, in the way you play and let's not look for, let's not start looking for, playing expansive we need to protect basically the two centre-backs because 
Well, I think Colin Colin should be back in the next game. I'm I'm assuming, or is he is he out injured he now? Played, he played a Wrexham. Uh, so he played a Wrexham. Sorry, yes, of course. Collins, did you? Yeah. So we'll have Collins, but it's the it's who's going to play with him, and we need to protect whoever plays with him. Um, because also the other thing as well is if we're playing a chemo at left back, we're going to have to pr- uh, protect chemo as well. Because I still I still think one v one the chemo is 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 weak. Um, we saw that against Maidstone. Against Maidstone, he was getting terrorised around the outside when I'd expect him as a left footer to be, that should be his area of strength. So, um, yeah. So that's how, that's how I try and tackle it at the moment. And, I, you know, keep the spaces cl- a lot closer between the players and not have our midfield vacating it um, when we got the ball. Charlie, there's been some talk, obviously, as there is with Honnett every five minutes. You know, we have a manager change every six months. So it's coming up to that time of the year. Uh, for some Barnet fans, at least, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that most Barnet fans are uh, are not, uh, you know, twitching uh, with the finger to kind of look to get rid of Brennan. But what sort of things would you would you want to see in the course of the next month to to see us sort of not squander the good chance and equally not allow a bad run of form to become uh, a more serious problem if we slide further down the table? So, what sort of things would you want to see on the pitch at least from from Dean over the next few weeks? Yeah, no, totally. Listen, I'm I'm. I'm nowhere, nowhere near, uh, nowhere near Brennan now. I think he's come in and, you know, he, he has turned, turned us around from where we were to where now, you know, he, he's changed a lot. He's brought a little bit of belief back. He's brought a little bit of the buzz back. Um, he's made us an exciting team to watch. Yes, you know, we're still not sorted things out of the bat, but I do think that can change. Um, listen, look, we're, we're seven points off, off the playoffs and 13 points off top. I know it doesn't sound great, um, but we got off to a decent start, which has put us in, you know, a decent position. Um, we're flirting with the playoff places. You know, we've got a big, um, big month or two ahead, I think going into the Christmas period. Um, <clears throat> I just want to see a bit more heart and heart and soul and desire at the back, really. I want to see people, you know, just absolutely dying for that ball. Um, defence, just more organised. I want to, leave and you know feel proud of the defensive performance and even if that means us getting a you know a sloppy one nil win with a really rubbish goal but it, you know if we've if we've done the other end of done the nitty gritty then I'd, I'd much rather that than coming out and winning four three at Maidstone you know that Maidstone game was horrible towards the end um, I'd much rather have won one nil and had a really solid display. I think going into the next uh you know the next run of games I think apart from Bromley um so we've got Maidenhead, Bromley, Scunthorpe, Altrincham, Oldham, Torquay in the league. Apart from Bromley, they are one, two, three, four. That's five teams currently below us in the league that we play. Um, I know we've been, like I said, a bag of revels. We don't know who we're gonna who we're gonna beat. But you know, from in in August, the teams that were sort of lower than us, we we picked up points against them. And it seems like you know when we played Maidstone at home, we got three points against them. So I think we really need to take advantage of this period where we haven't got. Uh, apart from Bromley, who've had an amazing start and look like they're going to get the playoffs. Um, we've got to really take advantage of this next um, four, five, six weeks um, and really, really aim to pick up a substantial amount of points that will take us into the December period and the Christmas period where we're still, you know, flirting with the playoffs or even in the playoffs. Because, um, you know, we in this league, all it takes is a run of three wins on the bounce and you're back in the mix. So we've got to just make sure we stay with the pack. I think that's the key. And even if that means us, you know, dropping off towards the end of the season and ending up finishing, you know, ninth or tenth, 
that's a massive, massive improvement. Um, but, you know, we can't afford to pick up any more ridiculous defeats. Um, and, you know, you, you're then too far behind to even get mid-table. So um, I think it's a yeah. massive, massive six weeks ahead where we need to pick up some points big time. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you both for our chat uh, about uh, on-field matters. Uh, we're going to take a brief break and then afterwards going to come back and have a quick chat about matters off the pitch of the Hive. Uh, so we'll see you in just a sec. Welcome back uh, and to the second part of this episode of these pods. Uh, we spent a lot of time discussing things on the pitch. Uh, and now I think it's really time, as we tend to do, just to spend the last part of the show uh, looking at things off the pitch from the hive. Um, one of the more interesting revelations has been uh, the publishing and the sharing of the minutes uh, by the Sports Association for their meeting with the club. Um, and there's quite a few things in there that are worthy of note, um, but also kind of a general uh, sense of, I guess, in the same way that the positive start of the season has sort of slightly petered out, the positive start to some of the stuff off the pitch in terms of uh, the ex and seems to get off uh, and some of the positivity generated around conversations with Dean uh, seems to sort of fade away slightly with some familiar issues returning, uh, the school board being a good example, uh, issues around catering, etc. Um, and I guess the general sense that things at the Hive aren't quite what they could be. Um, Mem, we're going to start with you on this one, not least because uh, you've had a bit of an insight into the workings of the Support Association, but kind of what stood out to you from those minutes and, and what have you kind of noticed from your experience at the Hive uh, since the start of the season that's kind of raised some questions for you? So it, what what the minutes sort of seemed to sort of show me was that some of the worrying signs over the summer um, seem to appear to still be continuing so to give you a bit of um a bit of background when the sports association first sort of reformed we had a lot of engagement with the club and to be fair we've had quite a lot of engagement with the club for the last year but what i kind of noticed sort of towards the end of my tenure as a, at the sports association is that some of the achievements that we were getting were starting to be off you know uh, starting to slow down and despite the fact we were raising a lot of things with the club around catering, uh, you know, the bar in terms of the bar, food, uh, general stuff, you know, general issues, trying to get, trying to personalise the stand. We were struggling to get any kind of head, make any headway with a lot of these different things. And what the, what these minutes have showed me, and I think I'm really glad that they published these, these, what you can see here is just how hard the sport association and how many things the sport association have been trying to get the club to engage with. And actually how many things are, are, are still rolling over from month to month. And 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 we'll go into this a little bit more, but the thing around the deficit now that has really bothered me. But I'm sure well, I'd like to get into that a little bit more in a second. But generally, my observation is is that, and compared to my experience, is that a lot of the things that we've been trying that we've trying to do as sports association continue to get rolled over month to month and don't look like any look like being solved anytime soon. And to me, that's quite yeah. frustrating because that's the whole point of the sports association. TK even said it on B's pod himself. He wanted that engagement with the supporters association. We gave him an sports association or well, not gave him, but we put a sports association back together. 
And my feeling is, my gut in feeling is, is that I'm not sure that the club really are that interested in solving some of the issues that that have been raised. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, I think like full credit to the Sports Association and people at Mark, et cetera, putting in a huge amount of effort to really try and get things back. And I really, I think I speak on behalf of a lot of Barnet fans that we really do really appreciate the efforts they're putting in. And, you know, I know it's not always easy on all sides. I'm sure there are things that the club get kind of frustrated with the supporters um, for as well. But Charlie, one of the things that um, I think down to the second half articulated it really well, and it's something that uh, I think has been a common theme for a while is uh, I think one of their articles was entitled like kind of non-league, but we seem to have lost the charm. And I guess one of the, the things with Barnet is that, you know, in part because we're in London, but also even with the team ticket offer, we know it's quite an expensive experience coming to the Hive uh, in terms of the parking, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the catering and even the match day pricing, et cetera. So you've got the kind of the reasonably high cost. cost. Uh, you've got this kind of, new stadium that for some supporters still isn't obviously like the old underhill. And then, you know, you've kind of lost the performance on the pitch as well. So the idea would be that you might trade off, for example, a bit of the experience to have a bit more quality, or you might have a slightly higher cost and have higher quality. But it seems that we've ended up a little bit with quite a high cost, not brilliant quality. And as far as we can see, not brilliant performances on the pitch in terms of reinvestment from all of the money and the five sides and all that stuff into the club. So yeah, I guess the kind of general look, having looked at those minutes, anything that stood out to you at all or yeah, anything that you kind of thought was was worth raising about the, the high experience so far this season? Oh God, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where to start, to be honest. <clears throat> this is just, <clears throat> you know, I'm so, just like we all are, I'm so passionate about this and I was, I'm so, I get so angry um, that York game the other day, uh, me and my dad left at half time. It was 2 0. Granted, we were 2 0 down with 10 men, but you know, we left at half time. Um, listen, I will always go to Barnet. Barnet's ingrained in me. I bleed black and amber. I will never ever not go until we move to the Midlands and have a different name and a different logo. I will always go and support Barnet no matter what, right? But that York game it sort of was a real kick in the teeth and it was a bit of the final straw. It was, it was probably, it was probably the worst match day experience I've ever had going to a Barnet game. It was absolutely abysmal from start to finish. Um, I just don't get it. I just don't understand TK, you know, TK classes himself as this amazing businessman and, you know, he runs, he runs amazing businesses. Well, he, this football club is his business and if he's based in being a good businessman of Barnet FC, well, I can tell you, TK, you are a terrible businessman because he hasn't done anything right. He doesn't listen to any of us. It's, there's there's no excuses anymore. I'm absolutely fed up of it. Every other single club, bar, bar one or two, if you're a South End fan, every other single club is is run well. Is run well. Like, and I'm not saying run well in terms of you know um, the transfers they bring in, but I'm talking about the match day experience. Uh, it's it's just the joke. Like to, to go to a ground and to have to still have no scoreboard. I don't care if it costs. How much did they say it cost? Hundred and ten k? Did he say? No, he didn't. They didn't give a figure. The the the, the, the what's called the words that they used were something like that. It would affect the budget, or it was not. You know, essentially what they're saying is it would cost too much to fix, and we don't have the budget for it because we don't. So have- why why did my question on that then is why if if you're if you're listening, TK, why did we move? Why did we move? If you can't afford to maintain this club at this new venue and this new ground that you wanted to go to, why didn't we just stay at Underhill? I don't understand it. We can't, we can't, we can't, you can't maintain it. There's, there's, you know, there's bloody 
in the in the Legends bar, there's no Necco anymore. So they've got a little white sticker saying Peroni, but it's not Peroni because that one's Peroni and they've got all the beers mixed up. There's a 10 minute queues. There was no, you know, there's queues, no, no, no club shop. There's no, there's a club shop in the stadium and it's not open on a match day because everyone got staff. That is, there's no more excuses for that. It's, it's, it's absolutely abysmal the way this club is run at the moment. And the fact, I don't care how much it costs, the fact there is still not two scoreboards in that hive ground is just it just shows they don't. He does not care. If you're an owner of the club and you want people to be on your side and you want this club to be run properly, and we know the income. You know, we worked out earlier the income that he must be getting from matters off the pitch that you know are held in the hive. There's a lot of money being generated at that club, and and that you know you could probably make you could probably buy the scoreboards from the bloody car park earnings on a match day. That it's that steep. Um, there's there's no excuses anymore. I'm fed up of it, and it's it it does show on the pitch. Like if the longer this goes on off the pitch, no matter how good we are on the pitch, nothing's going to change because it all coincides together. It all links and it all matches up. And we're we're not going to go anywhere while this club is being run. I'm not saying who it's being run by. I'm saying how it's being run. I don't mind if TK's there, if stuff off the pitch is being put into place that, you know, we all want and that we've all raised. But when it gets to the point where we've raised it and raised it and raised it and raised it, and we've had meetings after meetings after meetings, and none of it's getting being put into place, we can't even see a slight change. Then where do you go from there? Because you've got an owner who doesn't give a shit. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, one of, the, one of the challenges, I think, is that from the outside, you know, you would say, okay, well, you've got a, a, a bunch of supporters here complaining about a scoreboard or they're complaining about the club shop not being open um, or they're complaining about weddings or whatever. And I think if you take each of those things in isolation, you can kind of explain it away, right? Uh, so you could say, well, yeah, the scoreboards, well, that's just something to do with this part that's from America or the beer, that's just because we haven't got the staff or the club shop, that's because of the staff as well or the parking, whatever it is. Um but I think the, the point is that it's everything in isolation can be explained away, but there does sort of come a point where it becomes a bit of a culture. And I do worry sometimes. I don't think it's necessarily intentional um, because I, I really hope it's not. But it, it does sometimes feel a little bit like the supporters are just a little bit annoying customers that need to be kind of placated and slashed explained away. Um, and I think a good example of that is kind of some of the messaging that goes out around like the refunds um, for the game that was postponed against South End, where it's kind of like, despite our policy saying that we're not going to give a refund, we're going to give you a refund. And you're kind of like, well, just 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 give the refund or, or don't, but at least like don't don't kind of do it in a very begrudging way. And I find that to be the case with a, quite a few things at the club sometimes is it's just a little bit kind of begrudging or patronizing, et cetera. And that's a shame because there are some great people there and there are definitely like some really well-intentioned people who want to move things forwards. Um, but it, it just is strange. Like it's like the season ticket thing, like, you know, sure, like great offer, but like just implement it properly. You know, just have someone there who knows how to implement it properly. Ian, what um, is that though? Like, where does that stem from? Because why, why isn't anything straightforward? I don't understand. What is it? Is it well, the people I, I, that work there? No, I, I think that's unfair. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to cast aspersions about the people that work there because I'm sure people who work there work very hard and, and try their best. I think, if I'm being honest, I think that it's probably like 
you need people who are either really passionate about the club or who um, are very, very highly skilled in what they do to run a professional football club. And I worry sometimes that we don't quite pay attention to details. Football's changed, right? Football's changed in the last 25, 30 years. There aren't many owners that have sort of stuck it out for that amount of time. And as I said, I'm not a TKL person. I, I feel that what's probably happened is it's kind of like Underhill was one of these kind of quite charming old school grounds where nothing worked. And that was kind of part of the charm of it, right? You never have people complaining about the Barnet Times clock not working at Underhill, right? Because that's just part of Underhill. I think we've maybe transposed some of those business cultures across to the hive. Um, and it just hasn't quite had the same effect because it is a kind of modern football setup. And then you kind of factor in other things, which is like, you know, other things have changed, like social media um, for players, players talking to each other, WhatsApp. There's a lot more informal. You can't really control communication the same way that you were able to sort of 10, 15 years ago. So you may have been able in the past to kind of get away with, oh, well, excuse me. Oh, well, you know, this is um, kind of how we do things or, you know, we can kind of get away with not having the best communication, et cetera, because the world has changed. So I don't think it's so much the people. I think it's just like football has changed and it still is changing. and It will change even more. And, and like, you've got to kind of keep up with it, really. Like, a good example is, you know, the, the sort of media roles that we've had at the club. Like, and again, I'm sure Dom's trying his absolute best there, and this is not a slight against him at all. But it's just like, and, or anyone else who's worked there, a, a media role for a club like Barnet is, crit- is absolutely critical because, you know, you get a thousand people, but Barnet's still quite a reasonably well-known pop culture kind of club. And if you had really high-quality media output and you were, you were paying someone, you know, like a really good quality salary to work on it you'd reap that back in rewards we've again tended to sort of sometimes go for the cheaper end of the option with, with younger more experienced guys and again they've come in and tried their best but it's like again it, it kind of feels like those things are not really an investment they're seen as an expenditure and I think there's probably a mentality in the club where some things are seen as expenses a good example being something like player care or you know programs or you know match day experience everything's added on a balance sheet and we kind of know the cost of everything, but we don't know the, va- we don't know the value of anything. You know, a good example, club shop or, 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 or shirts, a, a supporter shirt, you know, I remember these excuses where it was like, oh, well, we have to charge more than Arsenal because there's a, a small run number, despite that not being the case for other lower league clubs. And sure, if you see that as a cost, yeah, fair enough. But the moment you begin to see these things as, as expenses, you know, uh, sorry, as uh, investments, if people are walking around London or someone's paying five aside with a Barnet shirt, it's all these small things that over time, kind of accumulate and kind of grow into into sharing the club's image a little bit more so for me it's, it's not so much like a, a kind of like oh people aren't working hard enough or there's not enough talent i think it's a kind of mentality and a culture of you know not investing enough in the club and it, it does annoy me genuinely that one of the reasons we moved to the hive was so that we could professionalize the club we could put it on a on more even standing that was what it was sold to us as and we we haven't quite done that. It's still pretty amateur in lots and lots and lots of ways. And anyone you speak to who's been at the club for a while is kind of like, yeah, you know, Barnet, okay. Like, you know, they kind of have that knowing smile. And, and that's a shame because it doesn't have to be that way. As I said, it's not like a massive rant. I'm not hugely anti anyone that works there. It's just like, it's just a shame. It just makes me sad rather than anything else. Mem, I know you want to talk about the, about the investment side of things. So we'll come back to you before we wrap things up. Yes. So the one thing that stuck out for me on this, uh, on these minutes is this revelation. I, I, I use the word revelation. Um, cause I don't think a lot of people were, had ever seen anything like this, that this, the words were, um, so Dominic Russo, who, uh, who is the, uh, me, the new media guy confirmed that support should be aware that the chairman personally makes up a deficit of over 110 K to Barnet football club every month. So 
I've got a real issue with this. I've got a real issue with this this statement that's been put in it because it's clearly been designed to make us feel as if we should be really thankful to the chairman that we are in the black and that we're not a club with tons of debt. Okay. But if you look in and you dig a bit deeper, I, there is a real problem with, with this statement. So put my, put my cards on the table. Anybody who's ever listened to this knows that I have always been quite so very supportive of Barnet going to the hive. I felt that Underhill was becoming too, t- it was becoming like this tin pot experience. And in my eyes, going to a new stadium would create this match day experience. It hasn't clearly, but I've always supported the club going to the hive because I felt that that was the way to progress as a football club. So, and the, the way that TK explained it was that, that all these extra revenues from a 365 day a year operation will be used to make Barnet a better club. And in his words, he was his vision was that Barnet would be in would eventually be in the championship. So to hear that as <laughs> as being as, I know I know you're laughing, Charlie, sorry, but that was sorry. that was the, that was the vision presented to the supporters when we moved. Okay, whether you believe that or not, that was the vision. And actually, rationally, moving to the new stadium was 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 necessary in terms of trying to make this club more professional. Um, you know, on and off the pitch. Now, if T, now I worked out that one point one hundred and ten grand a week, if he's having to put put in, according to this, personally makes up a deficit. One hundred and ten k a week is one point three two million pounds. Okay, for a year. Now, anybody who knows anything about budgets in this division will know one point three two million pounds will put us up there with some of the biggest clubs in this division. Okay. In terms of budget. So hang on a second. So if we, if that is how much it's costing to run Barnet football club, why aren't we, why are we shopping in the Akimo market and the, you know, Michael Phillips and Diara's. And I guarantee that is not the budget of our playing budget is 1.32 million, which means, so what about all these extra revenue streams? We've got the weddings, now we worked out earlier. If you if on a very conservative number of twenty-five weddings a year, it's about a million pounds. Okay, there is the five-side pitches, which is which are used regularly. Okay, they're always full. The pitches are rented out on the weekends as well to uh, eleven aside. If I'm not wrong, I think it's the Maccabi League do have got a block booking mm-hmm. for for all those pitches. You've got the gym membership. Okay, car pass. Match day revenue plus season tickets plus anything made at the ground on a match day, but also plus anything made on the bar. Now, we were told all this revenue was going to be used to strengthen the team. But now we're being told, actually, that none of this money is actually covering even the def- even the budget for the team. And that's been made, the deficit is being made up personally by the chairman. Okay, so what that... So rewinding back, what they're saying to me is that the chairman is now looking as at our team as being almost like a failing business within the the group of businesses at the Hive, when actually it was supposed to be the focus. The reason we moved to um, from Underhill to the Hive was supposed to be to fund the football team to make this football team a much stronger team. Okay, 
that statement tells me that the team now is not the focus of the hive anymore. And it tells me that in his eyes, in the chairman's eyes, this money that he's spending on the team isn't funding based on all the businesses funding the team. It's based on him at the goodness of his own heart paying, you know, to run a football team. That to me is is really, really upsetting because I've I've supported the hive, supported the concept of the hive, and that is telling me that we are now not the focus of this whole business when we were told that was the reason we moved. We made 14.5 million, I believe, from the sale of Underhill. That underpinned a lot of the development at the Hive. And I'm sure a lot of the plans made were made in lieu of that money arriving. So this, to me, I just think is, is I'm, I'm really upset about this. I just feel that this is a massive slap in the face for all the people that supported the move to the Hive and got a lot of grief of people, you know, in in the bar in at Underhill who were really upset about moving to to the hive. This to me is a slap in the face to all the people like myself who supported this move. I think um, I think it's probably, you know, we will do it in due course. Uh, hopefully, with an exciting couple of shows later on in in twenty twenty three. Look at the, the sort of ten years since the move from. Um, the move to Underhill, sorry, the move to the high from Underhill. It's probably not time to go into it right now and do it justice. Um, but I think you're right. It's yeah, it's interesting, and I think it's yeah, it's 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 a really the club finds itself in a bit of a crossroads, in a bit of a strange place. Um, and I think what Charlie said is is right about you know until these off-field matters are fixed, it's going to be difficult for the on-field ones to materially improve over the long term. Um, and actually you know, to some extent are the, are the on-pitch struggles that we've been having a symptom of some of these uh, sort of stuff or things that are happening off the pitch. But look, we're going to, we're going to end things there. And hopefully for you uh, who've been listening, quite a few things uh, to sort of think about and reflect on. Uh, most importantly though, for us, uh, we'll be looking forward to getting some games over the course of the next few weeks, uh, starting off with the Western Supermare game uh, on Saturday. So fingers crossed the bees can put things right on the pitch um, but as ever, thank you so much for listening uh, at home. Uh, if you have any questions or thoughts, uh, you know where to find us on Twitter. And all that remains for me to say is a massive thank you to you, Charlie. And Cheers, a massive uh, to you as well, Mem. Have a lovely evening, gents. And thank Ian, you for can listening. I just, can, I, can I just quickly say, if you listen to this, it'd be really, really good for anyone just to like put your thoughts and stuff on Twitter because I think it would be really good to keep this discussion going on some of the points we've made. 100%. Uh, and on that note, we look forward to seeing what you think uh, when we open up Twitter in the morning. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, man. Take care, guys. See you later, everyone. Bye.